From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Chime raises $750 million at a $25 billion valuation. LendInvest secures a £150 million partnership with Barclays and HSBC. And JP Morgan and Amex invest in Plaid. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Welcome to episode 556 of Fintech Insider. My name is Adam Davis and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Guerra. Guerra, how are you doing? Hi, Adam. Doing okay. Been a busy week. Oh, you gave me the pitch sign like that. This is the first podcast we've done together. How are you doing? Doing okay. Yeah, it is the first podcast we've done together. This is exciting, Adam. Um, nice to see you uh, outside of Zoom and on the podcasting duties. Yeah, it's like outside of the work context and into like the media context. We wear we wear many hats. Uh, now it's awesome to have you here, um, and we are not alone. Uh, making his fintech insider debut, uh, we have Rod Lockhart, who's the CEO at Lend Invest. Uh, Rod, thanks so much for joining us. A massive week for yourselves. Uh, how, how are you doing? I'm great. It's great to meet you guys. I'm really looking forward to this. So looking forward to a great discussion. Awesome. And uh, making a very welcome return, we should say. Uh, I was going to doff my hat and give up my hosting duties to him, uh, but it is none other than Mr. Sam Moore, uh, who is now the key account executive at Google Cloud. How are you doing, Sam? I've done more podcasts with Guerra than you, and I've, I've figured that out. <laughs> Just so you know. Wow, we thank you. Way to you're welcome. Way to like raise your game and just you know put put me on my pedestal. But anyway. Um, Let's uh, let's get going with the news. So the first story, Sam, I'll come to you first, but I'll read through the uh, I'll read through the blurb. This is that Chime has raised seven hundred and fifty million dollars at a twenty five billion valuation. Uh, so this was carried on Finextra. It's been carried by lots of others as well. Um, this was in a Series G funding round. I don't have many of those uh, that values the as we said the American digital banking giant at twenty five billion. But don't call them a bank. You can call them call them a banking giant, but not a bank. Uh, that's ten billion higher than in September last year. Uh, the rise is attributed to the rise of digital services uh, in the pandemic. Founded in 2013, Chime offers a fee-free, user-friendly banking app, which provides uh, an accompanying data uh, a debit card uh, on which the business earns interchange revenue uh, and auto savings account. Um, with the new funding in place, Chime is said to be uh, investigating an IPO, uh, very uh, on vogue at the moment, uh, in the first half of next year. Um, Sam, I mean, Chime do more than that. Um, but, you know, at its heart, it's been, I guess, the center of this sort of uh, neo-banking revolution in the US, um, given its, its entity, given like how it's structured, given it's like how much money it's making. Now, apparently it's broken even uh, pre-EBITDA, so pre-tax and, and all that sort of stuff. But in theory, there is some form of uh, metric in there that they're hanging on to, which says that they have broken, e uh, broken even. Uh, Ron Shevlin, who's a friend of the show, wrote in Forbes uh, that he's not yet, I know you know Ron very well, uh, is not yet convinced Chime is actually worth $25 billion yet. Um, only if it expands its customer base to wider demographic and makes more acquisitions. I don't know, like your thoughts on that and your thoughts on the raise and Series G and IPO and generally, I guess, what's going on in the, the States from a neobank perspective. I think one, um, Ron's piece that he wrote in Forbes is outstanding. I mean, it, it, Ron always writes really well. Uh, I think he posts an article every Monday on Forbes on FinTech and the one he wrote on Chime, I think is really, really good. Um, and I, I agree with just about every point he had in there. Two, um, 
And Chime's a beast. Uh, are they worth this valuation? No. I mean, come on, valuations are nuts right now. But when it comes to the U.S. and it comes to neo banks, I mean, they are they're flat out uh, killing it. Um, they they need the revenue. Um, I mean, their their logo is now on the Dallas Mavericks basketball team's uh, jerseys. I saw that. Know that Mr. Cuban's team. So trust me, yep. Cuban did not cut them a deal. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure <laughs> they needed the raise for that. But Chime knows how to to market. I mean, their customer acquisition strategy is fantastic. They definitely understand the value of marketing. Um, you know, your revenue scheme on interchange and out of network ATMs ain't going to float you, you know, forever in a day. I know Rod would not want that business model. Um, but for now, you know, th- they can take the money. And I do agree with Ron, a couple of acquisitions moving to, into lending will definitely help them. And that not a bank component of it makes it a little bit rough, but through acquisitions and the right play. Um, I mean, down the road, don't be surprised if they buy a bank. In all honesty, I wouldn't be shocked. There's plenty of credit unions and and community banks out there they could acquire. So I wouldn't be shocked to see that happen. Um, I definitely think they'll IPO. I don't know if you saw the news. Um, Aspiration, one of their competitors, is going to go public via SPAC. That news just came out yesterday. So I definitely expect, yeah, I definitely expect um, Chime to, to go down the IPO route very soon. Do you think, like, I guess, uh, with a view of how, so some companies that have IPO'd this year have done very well. If I'm talking from a fintech perspective. If you look at, like, Upstart Holdings have gone absolutely nuts. Um, even Robin Hood's, I think, gone up about, what, 8-10% in the last month or so. Some have done not so well, um, like the Marketers of the world. Eh, not terribly, but they've gone down slightly. N- none have sort of bombed or anything like that. I guess, like... What what do you think that Chime needs to tell say to the market about its potential roadmap that will mean that it has a smoother IPO maybe than some? Because and I and especially I'm talking about um, potentially getting into credit, um, even if it's someone else's underwriting and they're only taking a small margin on it, um, or is it like a statement of we want to be profitable in in X amount of months or X amount of years? Like, well, is there anything they really need to say to the market before they make the statement that they are going to IPO and it's going to be on X date? Yeah, I think it has to be on product diversification. Um, I, I, you know, because the only way they're going to continue to to make money is to keep acquiring customers. And if you read Ron's article, that's kind of leveled off. I mean, one of the big challenges for them is their success. I mean, um, a friend of mine and a friend of ours, John Wash, if you all remember Wash, he's been on our show before. He just launched a neo bank called Nerve that's targeted toward musicians. You know, you've got Daylight, yeah. who y'all have had on before for the LGBTQ yep. community. You've got Aspiration around, you know, um, uh, doing good and and, um, and and how you invest your money. So there's, you know, you got Greenwood, which is growing like crazy here in the U.S. There's so many niche banks out there. Is it niche or niche? I go ne- I'll niche. go for niche. I go. Well, niche. Let's go with we, niche. That's a, we, yeah. we we covered a niche last week. Uh, XPO we covered last week. Uh, becoming okay. the bank of the creator, the creator economy. So they're specifically serving that. I'll call it a niche. I'll go for niche. So we'll go with niche. But I mean, that's going to uh, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. We used to talk about that with fintech doing that to the banks, and we're watching fintechs do that to each other now too. So I mean, the competition is growing like crazy. And like Ron pointed out, don't ignore Walmart. Because that's one thing with Chime's current customer base. I think one in five are unemployed right now. You know, that's not exactly who I'm targeting if I'm trying to build a very profitable model. Um, so they're, yeah. they're going to have some challenges, but I wouldn't bet against them. They got a great team. They got some incredibly smart people there. They got great backers. Uh, some of the folks they just brought on their board are outstanding, which means a lot. Your, your board members and the advice you're getting, they're, 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 they're a smart group. I think, you know, Diversify well, get those other products out there, and uh, um, they'll 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 do they'll be fine. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that they are, uh, according to um, their latest investment round, the third most valuable fintech behind Klarna, and I'm assuming Revolut as well on a global basis. But then that doesn't necessarily include the stripes of this world, etc., who would dwarf them, but probably wouldn't be fintech. It would be, I guess, more be infrastructure. Um, I, I guess, uh, Rod, I'll come to you as, as somebody who's just IPO'd himself in the last month. Um, I, I guess, uh, and, any lessons of advice <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to, to, a, uh, to, to a US base? No, I mean, from your perspective and the process you just went through, and I know we're going to cover a little bit in, de- uh, in detail coming up, did you? Does their business model, like as someone who maybe sits on 
uh, and specializes in a different type of financial product? Do you look at this and think, wow, that's just real risky or and really low margin? Or do you look at that and think, actually, do you know what? That, there, there's some elements of what they do, which really, you know, I, I, could, I could get on board with. Well, the, the, the first bit, it, you know, they're, they've raised a lot of money and a massive valuation. Um, and, you know, put those two things together. It's great. That is great for the sector. It's great for what we do. It's great. Um, um, it's great for fintech overall. Um, uh, you know, having just been through an IPO and been uh, you know, clearly in the UK, though, and I think there is a big, big difference between um, IPOing a, a fintech business in the UK and, and doing something similar in, in the US. I, I just think US investors, um, certainly public market investors, seem to have a much greater appetite for growth and value growth um, in a way that I don't think um, UK um, UK long uh, long owning equity investors do do currently. So I think there there is a huge difference between um, the the market that we IPO into and 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 the US market. Um, but there's a you know it's a tough gig to IPO business. There's a massive amount of work that goes into it. Um, and when you're trying to grow a business really really fast at the same time, it, it it's tough. So I think you know. It, it, they they're clearly you know making this statement gearing up for gearing up for next year but you do need a lot of lot of stars to align to be able to um, pull off an IPO grow a business quickly and uh, the market timing being right as well so it'll be really interesting um see how they get on and you know maybe maybe um saying they're interested in IPO is just putting them in the SPAC um SPAC window as well and you know that that could be a um, a, a slightly more straightforward process uh, uh, for, for them as well. So it's, it's really interesting, and uh, you know, I think it's great for the sector. All these businesses raising such 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 big big amounts of money. Really, other thing I was going to say, and I'd love to get Guerra's opinion on this and Rod's, um, not yours, Adam, um, but that it, it is fascinating. If if we would have said this back around March of 2020, that we were going to see growth like this, and we were going to see even the economic indicators that we're seeing in the U.S. and in the U.K., right? I think all of us would have been incredibly pessimistic. I, I, absolutely. You know, we were, we were, I don't think many people were sitting at that point expecting what was to come to come. Um, clearly, there's been a lot of, uh, I suppose, uh, support um, from a monetary perspective. You know, interest rates are incredibly low and, you know, that does some weird and wonderful things. And, um, you know, their, their values are being driven to these sorts of levels. But I think what's really exciting for our sector is just the, the, the drive towards adoption of digital digital yeah digitalization of everything and and we really saw it um and you know we weren't expecting um to get the advantage that 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 we did when we went in came into you know come into the crisis we've got a digital um uh, yeah a digital offering to allow people to apply for loans whereas most of our competitors didn't wow suddenly suddenly do more business and and you know that's been reflected um reflected everywhere in in you know all sorts of technology business and and that's fantastic overall i think uh Guerra, I'll, I'll come to you just very quickly they've got uh just during the pandemic they're saying that they're adding hundreds of thousands of accounts every month but they declined to say how many users they had overall um you've got an ops background uh no one is more uh familiar with uh, in- the term engaged users than yourself and the connotations of what that means for a business case and and everything else um i, I suppose like for, from um uh, from their perspective are they being a little, a little bit cagey maybe about the amount of customers they've got because you think it will it could come up to scrutiny if you're actually looking at the amount of engagement that those customers have with chime yeah i think engagement numbers are can also be another word for vanity metrics like uh, you know, famously, Monzo and Revolut have used uh, metrics like weekly active users um, or monthly active users, which and monthly is probably, you know, there are apps I open once a month that uh, are very, very useful to me in my life, but um, I may not need to open them all the time. So um, are they, are, is Chime trying to make their app sticky? Maybe, we don't know. But I, I will say that Chime, Chime is definitely the girl all the girls want to be, like, all the banks are jelly, are super jealous of Chime. Like, you know, Chime is able to be nimble without a banking license and they're able to, to you know, hoover up all these all these customers, whether or not, you know, these are valuable customers, you know, value generating customers or um, or not is, is unknown. Maybe we might find out when they do their filing. Um, but, you know, th- th- their competitors are the likes of Varo who have a, you know, bank charter. 
um, which is very cumbersome to, to get and really hard. Now, I wonder what Chime's decision was to not get a, their own charter, um, but also IPO, you know? So, like, what are they choosing speed over uh, control and, and uh, I don't know. That, yeah, they're in a very similar spot, actually, to Revolut, who announced their intentions to IPO. Whether that be in the state or the, U- uh, the UK, I don't know, but uh, they announced their intentions. And it actually looks like a relatively similar business, not that much credit going on. You know, there's a decision as to whether or not they want to go on charter. They know how much it costs, 100 million plus, but then all the capital compliance requirements and reporting underneath it. So there's a lot of... Uh, you know, for an organisation that doesn't is low margin at the moment, I suppose if you then go down the bank route, um, you're going to see any margin that you've got probably be eroded away in costs. So there's you've got a you know it's a long long term play, especially if you want to get into credit. So um, they've got a lot of things to consider and a lot of things I think to 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 announce to the market maybe before they do decide to IPO. Anyway, let's move on to the next story. Uh, we're going to half look at an IPO, but mainly uh, look around a partnership that you guys, Rod um, and Lend Invest, have done with Barclays and HSBC. Uh, this was carried on Finextra as well, but then in other publications. Uh, so Lend Invest, uh, which is an asset management platform for property finance, has agreed a £150 million partnership with Barclays and HSBC to get funding to UK property entrepreneurs. So the agreement will see the banks fund uh, uh, specialty long, short-term mortgages through LendInvest's digital platform, which helps borrowers access property finance uh, in, a, in a matter of days. So Barclays joined the firm's roster of financial partners, which include HSBC, uh, as well as Citibank, JP Morgan, and NAB. Uh, and the deal comes uh, weeks after you guys, as we just mentioned, you guys uh, listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, Rod, congrats. Um, the facility that you guys have set up obviously has got enormous benefits. We'll talk about that in a sec. And again, congrats on the IPO. Um, I think just stepping back a little bit, because we don't actually cover that much prop, prop tech, I guess, on FinTech Insider. Um, and we really should, because it's like a super interesting area and it's grow- like obviously enormously fast growing. Do you want to sort of give um, a little bit of a background to our listeners on what you guys do specifically, and then also what this partnership gives you that, that you guys have just done? Yeah, so so I just just take a step back. You know, as you say, Lendinvest is an asset management platform for property finance. So what, what does that mean? On on one hand, we have investors coming onto our platform um, and investing in um, the assets that we originate. On the other side, we're providing um, landlords and property developers with a range of of, of different mortgage products, from um, short term mortgages, um, which is uh, the, the the product that we just uh, funded through this um, arrangement with um, HSBC and Barclays through to development loans. So um, you know, it, it's the model's as simple as that, really. Um, and, and we're held together with um, a technology platform that um, really makes it easy for investors to invest into um, this asset class that otherwise it's pretty tough to access. And on the other hand, um, allows um, borrowers to, 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 to get property finance in a more seamless digital way than, um, than they're usually able to through the sort of uh, traditional lenders that we compete against. And your, uh, I, I guess your uh, your standard clientele, I guess, so the, the the people that you're marketing to, who are they in terms of what what, what do they look like? Uh, we're talking, I'm assuming, property developers, uh, construction developers, etc. Yes, so most of our customers are, are landlords. So these are um, you know, people that are renting out usually residential property um, in the UK, and um, they have fairly large portfolios of, of residential property. And we'll, we'll provide them with either long-term, what we call in the UK, buy-to-let mortgages, or um, these short-term mortgages where they're repositioning assets before then selling those assets or or, um, uh, or refinancing them onto longer-term finance later. Um, so that's one group of borrowers. And the other group of borrowers is, is sort of more classic property developers who are, who are building sort of ground-up um, residential developments. Um, and, and that's our core customer base. I mean, we, we're sort of slowly moving into um, various homeowner mortgage products as well. And um, the IPO um, uh, really ra- you know, gave us the opportunity to raise capital to, to, to push that forward. So, you know, hopefully in the not too distant future, alongside these landlords and developers, we'll also have a, you know, a big group of um, homeowners borrowing um, through Lend Invest as well. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you um, about, I guess, the, the the tech that sits behind the company, and actually, just in general, around behind 
prop tech because it, it it's kind of interesting if we look at a bank and we look at a bank's tech stack everything's being disrupted so you're talking about the the cloud services and the servers that it used to sit and we're talking about the infrastructure and if you like the capabilities things like you know from credit scoring all the way through to how you make a payments etc you're talking about like the services that you know that customers interact with everything literally is being uh, completely disrupted with new players etc so the whole tech stack's changing in the in the world of property um which is, you know, generally based around large transactions. Obviously, it's a physical thing. <laughs> it's a building. There's, there's bricks there. Um, how, like, w- what elements of your organization and your service is being um, massively disrupted, if you like, by technology? And then what trends are you seeing, I guess, in the wider industry, which also, you know, you can point to and say, prop tech is this, I guess. Yeah, so so I'd probably just take a step back further. I mean, we, we always sort of describe property finance as the area that's been least disrupted, um, in a, you know, compared to some of those other segments that you've just talked about. Um, and I think that's because the property lending process just has these huge frictions involved in it. Um, and, um, you know, one of them is um, valuations. Uh, how do you value real estate? You know, you, automated valuations go so far for some types of real estate, but most of the time, unfortunately, someone needs to still go and see a property. So that's a horrible friction that exists in the property lending process. Conveyancing, particularly in the UK, is is dreadful. You know, the legal process of borrowing a mortgage, uh, taking a mortgage is 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 horrendous. So so you know, they're just some of the frictions in in the process that exist. And you know what we're what we're doing is is um, removing the frictions, accepting these frictions exist, writing business, and then just removing these frictions one by one to make a slicker process um, uh, for, for borrowers looking to, to, to take property finance. Give you give you some examples of, of, of the things that we're doing that we fully expect other lenders in the not too distant future to start to, to replicate. But but some of the things that have made a really big difference to us, you know, first of all, basic things, DocuSign, you know, what, what was going on before? With all these wet-in documents that exist in, you know, um, when when you're trying to borrow on a, a mortgage normally, um, and then a, a KYC AML. Um, anyone who's taken a mortgage recently, you know, trying to get a document certified, taking that along to a solicitor, faxing it, God knows what, you know, being able to integrate with a. Um, a, a, a integrate and provide um, KYC solutions on someone's mobile phone as part of a, uh, an onboarding process is clearly game-changing compared to the incumbents. And then for us, the, the thing that's probably been the biggest impact most recently has been open banking. And um, another, you think about property finance and you think about uh, if you've ever taken a mortgage, one of the really <laughs> poor parts of that process is verifying your income where you, you basically have to go through your bank statements and print off bank statements, doctor, you know, doctor them so that the, you're not giving away too much information, but send in, you know, it's, it's just a nonsense process. And you can imagine a lender, the other side of that, has got all these PDFs of bank statements that they're sitting there trying to piece together. And then if they can't find a piece of that information, they go back to a broker who goes back to a borrower to get a PDF of the next bank statement. It's a complete crazy process that exists in all parts of property finance with open banking you can do away with pretty much all of that mm. and 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 for us it's been game changing just in terms of our processing time on a you know a single buy to let mortgage you go from 30 minutes of an underwriter trying to piece together this stuff in pdfs manually through to um uh, you know basically a, a few minutes of checking that a green tick exists um, through the open banking um, Mm. integration. So, you know, there is a lot happening. um, And I think, you know, the process of getting a mortgage, whether that's a homeowner mortgage um, or, you know, more specialist um, mortgages that we provide will get materially better over the next next few years. Um, And, and, you know, there's there's a real alignment, you know, a slicker process is um, more efficient for the lender, um, yeah. as well as being a better product for the for the customer. So I have to say, it's a uh, it's great to hear open banking use cases being used in this kind of way because we always cover like, and we're going to cover a plot of just raised money, uh, you know, this week. We always cover like the big raises and you know the big use uh, news stories. 
that generally sort of cover the big infrastructure players, but it's in this kind of use case, the adaption, adoption of open banking and adapting it to things like, you know, credit scoring, onboarding, KYC, whatever it might be, that's making a real change in the industry. And it's great to see. Um, Guerra, I'll come to you a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how, you, how, where on the scale your prop technology is, but you know, let's let's go down this road and see where we get to. Um, there's been, uh, I suppose, th this space in the UK has been disrupted relatively over the past few years. Um, you're looking at uh, like Molo mortgages. Uh, you're looking at there's been consolidation. They were acquired by uh, U-Switch. Um, there's been fleet mortgages. I think Starling have just bought there. There's but there's a there's some activity going on. Is this I suppose is the I hate to use the word digitization, but the digitization or, or prop tech becoming more I suppose uh, uh, available to be integrated with. Is, can you see this now, therefore, mortgage businesses becoming a part of, let's say, neobanks, other big financial services products and, and portfolios in, in the years to come? Yeah, I think we are at the, you know, still in the digitization stage. So things are things are going like, for, you know, PDFs or like things were signed in person or sent by, sent by fax are now PDFs. But, you know, folks like... Um, like fleet mortgages and 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 lend invest as well are really leaning heavily into like the digital side. So that's like the third level. So you know we go from analog, digitized, digital. Um, so I think it's it's definitely a, a really ripe place and uh, lots of lots of room to be disrupted and um, lots of money as well to be made there. Uh, but we'll see. But I, I mean, I, I have a question. Rod's, for... Rod's knocking. Rod, Rod, Rod's just nodding his head when you said that. Like, yes, there is. Rod's yes, like, there yeah, is. The, we did not get into this for the giggles. Um, but <laughs> congrats also. But no, so I have a question about, about the partnership. So, you know, I'm always curious when we see uh, partnerships versus acquisitions. Um, obviously, you guys are big kids now. You've got, you've IPO'd. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about the partnership. Like, why a partnership and not an acquisition? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so we we've partnered with with different banks for a number of years. So, it, by where background we've got, um, you know, as partnerships providing these are investor partnerships. So they're investing in our loan throughout in our loans through our platform. So we have um, JP Morgan, um, which we partner with, um, and we work with them on it for buy to let standard buy to let mortgages, Citibank and NAB um, as well, also on the buy to let side. HSBC, we we've been partnered with actually for for, for a number of years, um, uh, looking at sort of a range of different property finance products. And then really um, this recent announcement um, is off the back of um, Barclays coming onto the platform alongside HSBC as well. Um, the reason these banks will invest in our loans through our platforms really is because they can get access to an asset class that otherwise they they, they wouldn't be able to. Now that sound might sound nuts because I've just you know in HSBC and Barclays you're talking about two of the biggest mortgage lenders in the UK. You know huge banks with um, huge lending um, uh, in the UK. The reason they'll come to us and they'll work with us is because we give them access to a particular type of mortgage that they don't originate themselves. Um, and historically, they might have originated, you know, pre-2008, they might have originated like these loans themselves, but they would have done it with bank managers in branches and knowing local business people. None of that infrastructure exists. They haven't provided these loans for over a decade. And um, today, it's better for them to partner with a business like um, LendInvest, um, and they can get access to those um, uh, underlying loans um, without having to build the technology infrastructure that we have, and without having to hire the skill and experience that you need um, to understand um, understand the loans as well. So you know, that's that's why they do it. Um, you know, JP Morgan for example again you know huge a huge lender in the US but but isn't clearly providing mortgages in the UK doesn't have the infrastructure to 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 do that so you know they can get access to buy to let mortgages through uh, in the UK through through lendinvest and 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 importantly for them do it in scale because we we you know we've been up and running for years so you know we're originating you know in enough loans that are going to meet the sort of um uh, requ their requirements um Get get them get their capital deployed. 
Yeah, we've um, we've got to move on to. There's gonna. It's kind of a familiar trend. Like if you if you look at like uh, access to distrib access and distribution to areas which I think are hard to serve from a bank's perspective because of the costs involved if they were to either continue running it or or get into it. It's kind of a familiar theme, and it, and it does come up next as well uh, in our next story. Uh, and we will move on now. But before we do so, um, here's a quick word from our sponsor. There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with Deal. Everything from contract creation, record keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere thanks to Deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit letsdeal forward slash 11FS. That's letsdeal, D-E-E-L, dot com forward slash 11fs and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. Welcome back. Uh, for our next story, uh, JP Morgan and Amex invest in Plaid. So this was... Uh, covered again on Finextra. Again, it's been all over social. So um, open banking platform Plaid uh, has topped up its Series D financing round with investments from JP uh, and Amex. Uh, this is Amex Ventures. So the Ventures arm of Amex. Um, the amount invested was not disclosed, but it comes four months after the initial 425 million Series D, which valued Plaid at 13.5 billion. I think we covered that with Keith Gross, who's their UK lead, uh, when that did happen a few months ago. Uh, Amex is an existing Plaid investor, uh, but this is a first for JPM. Interestingly, their CEO, Jamie Dimon, uh, has previously been highly critical of Plaid, uh, accusing it of improperly using data that's been given to them. Dun, dun, dun. Um, the Plaid CEO, uh, Zach Parrott, said, uh, these are storied companies, which is true, intrinsic to the fabric of financial services uh, and are important partners, both JPM, uh, both their, sorry, their growth equity partners and American Express will be critical in our effort to enable great financial outcomes for customers and drive innovation in the industry. Um, I'm going to start, Sam, I'll start with you. Like, There's loads of places we can start with and we talk about Plaid quite a lot. Like, The one I'm going to start with is that this is a company that sold to Visa, um, what, uh, pre-pandemic probably i think it was beginning of last year maybe tail end of 19 uh, for 5.3 billion it's now worth 13.4 uh they've done well <laughs> full stop you know, that's a, it <laughs> it's a funny space man um I, I would say this find whoever jamie diamond is ripping and then bet on them about eight months later because he'll partner <laughs> with them so that's uh he's 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 a boss, is he not? I, um, I, I, I would have bought into Plaid if they were public. I would have bought into Plaid. I don't know if there were secondary yeah. shares of available, but yeah, it is it's absolutely bonkers. Um, I mean, you know, same, same with crypto, right? Jamie Dimon was ripping crypto, and here we are today. Um, d just don't bet against Jamie Dimon. I think is one thing I would say. Yeah, open banking. <laughs> it, it's just it's like it's just weird, right? Um, when I joined 11FS, I think it was 2017, and if I would have said then that, yeah, the U.S. neobanks are just going to be dominating, they're going to be killing it, I think people would have laughed at me. If I would have said open banking is going to, and embedded finance is going to be like the hottest topic in the U.S., people would have been laughing at me. And then here you go. I mean, you know, I, th I think the, the the story that I find very interesting is uh, is President Biden doing an executive order Yeah. on, how's this for sounding very British? Executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. You just had to take that one word out, American, and it would have sounded like an incredibly British-type announcement. So um, interesting times, man. Yeah, it is interesting, though, because that goes back to the Dodd-Frank Act, because there's something in there which sort of promotes competition but was never elaborated on. And then I think the FDX in the States have put some rules and regulations around potentially expanding the use of data sharing. But at the moment, it's all done via DDAs, direct data agreements between one party and the other. And it's a bit messy in terms of standards and whatever else. Um, but that's something that I think that whole movement, which has now you know resulted in, in, in Biden signing that executive order, it's all around trying to standardize slightly the industry in, in, in some form of variance. Um, Guerra, I'll come to you next. I guess you uh, you work with Plaid quite a lot. Uh, you've got some uh, specific experience with them. What, what's your thoughts on this and I guess the open banking movement uh, in the US and, and as it relates to pr product development, as you know? Uh, so Plaid is interesting because especially when you talk about open banking in the US, like, you know, five years ago, I never would have expected that to be something we talk about ever because the US is just so, you know, airtight. 
Um, but Plaid, you know, a couple you know, a year ago with with the visa acquisition, that was really interesting. Um, and you know, the fact that the five billion turned into thirteen billion is is even more uh, fascinating. Um, but no, I think Plaid, Plaid personally, you know, in anecdotally, like I've had trouble with them. You know, they 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 are. You know, Jamie Dimon isn't wrong. <laughs> they they have misbehaved a little bit in how they they acquire customer data. Um, but also, it's they're even if they do connect via API to actual like legacy banks, those connections aren't always reliable. Um, you know, some, sometimes these banks may have you know one tiny bug or outage that that will just block access to every Plaid user that that has a connection to that bank. So it's just. It's really frustrating because, and it's not their fault. You know, they're working with with boomers. Um, sorry, not to say boomers, but <laughs> with legacy systems. Um, but no, I think I think uh, you know this this uh, open banking movement being led in America by credit card companies is really interesting. A stark stark uh, difference from the UK. Mm. I was going to say, and it's it's just interesting that I mean. Uh, uh, Folks, you can't tell from our accents, but I'm from the U.S. And Guerra, you're originally from Canada, right? You're from Toronto. I lived in Toronto for many years, yeah. Yeah. So so it's just interesting that like the U.S. and Canada have lagged so much on open banking, right? I mean, the U.K., y'all, you know. I don't know if you well, guys lagged. For this. I don't know if you guys well, lagged. We, we, from we, we, we were very quick. Yeah, but the yeah. FCA, to be fair to them, like the FCA put a lot of emphasis on innovation. I mean, one thing I will say, just Guerra, just going back to your point um, about, you know, the, not every API works and there's reliability issues and whatever else. I will just harp on a little bit about the standards that the UK's open banking framework has put in place, which basically monitors this stuff and obviously mandates the banks to expose their data and financial in a certain way. And that is like, like for me... That's why I'm a big advocate, and I've, I've heard Plaid and other people speak about it before. I'm an advocate of putting in some form of standardization on this because for a product development perspective, it makes it a lot easier to be able to build a product to a certain standard. Um, but anyway, but yeah, sorry, Sam. I, well, I'm no, I was going to say is from the U.S. and Canada, from a regulatory standpoint, and like you said, the standard standpoint, being behind countries like Mexico and Brazil, right, who, who implemented this back in around 2018, if I remember right, um, but I've always said when it comes to open banking in the U.S., it would be market driven. I mean, for the most part, and as is most things in the U.S. Um, um, so, you know, we'll see. The appetite is definitely there. Um, and, and Rod, the, the, like the last segment when we talked about what you do and the solution that you provide, right? That the consumer demand is there for it, right? The idea of embedded finance and open banking. And whether or not consumers know what open banking is or embedded finance is, they couldn't define it, but they'll tell you, but they'll use the living, they'll use it once it's out there. I d- d- definitely, I think I, We've been using open banking or trying to integrate with open banking for for, for a number of years now, and and we the, the way that um, we use open banking is through uh, through a platform. So we use Credit Kudos, um, integrate with them. But over, over um, a few years now, we've been trialing in different um, integrations with other platforms, and um, actually, the thing that's most important to us is. Um, how do we get the customers to adopt open banking? So in the in the UK, we can't just um, use open banking. The 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 borrower, the applicant needs to make uh, needs to allow us to use open banking as part of that process. And of course, if you're in an environment where none of the other lenders, so the people you're competing against, don't ask you to tick this box and allow open banking, um, you're 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 creating. Um, if you make it mandatory, you're creating a friction that. Um, uh, into that process. So, so one one of the key challenges for us is how do we drive just greater adoption rates from from the borrowers applying from us, um, and you know through some integrations with some platforms or positioning our open banking at a certain point in our application process, we get hugely different results. And you know we've gone from um, uh, having adoption of around 10, 20% to now adoption um, of over 60% and of open banking. So, you know, we're, we're getting to the point where there's better awareness. Crucially for us, the mortgage market in the UK is intermediated. So it's about educating the brokers. So you don't have to educate every consumer, but if you can get enough brokers understanding 
what this open bank and you know, ticking that open banking box does in terms of making it a much better experience for uh, for everyone involved in the process then um you know we, we'll eventually get there with with you know hopefully getting to 90 percent and above adoption rates but um you know the key challenge for us has just been trying to get more people to 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 to, to tick that box and let that be part of the process because you know as as explained earlier for us it reduces our manual time hugely. So, you know, um, it, it, it's not only a better experience for the borrower, but for, for the lender, it's just a way, way more cost efficient way of, of um, originating a mortgage. Yeah, I got to say, I've, I've uh, I launched a mortgage business a fair few years now, and I don't envy you having to teach brokers how to do like something relatively technical. But anyway, uh, I can't even imagine how that was. J- just a quick one before we move on. Uh, it is interesting. Uh, we did a fintech insider poll last week around our valuations too high and funding rounds too big. Sixty percent said yes, twenty five percent said no, fifteen percent were unsure. Um, but it is interesting, like uh, in the context of that, looking at organisations like Amex, for instance, who have recently got into like digital assets and crypto. They've got into like accounting platforms and all sorts of other stuff. They're kind of following Visa, who I think initially then were following MasterCard into like uh, fintech ecosystem investments. And Sam, just a quick word on that in terms of, you know, the diversification of the schemes. Um, massive play for those guys and seemingly giving them an enormous boost from a valuation and, and balance sheet perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, most definitely. I, I'm... I'm <laughs> It's, it's an interesting one. I think I've told the story on this podcast before, but I'll, I'll, I'll touch on it briefly. Back around 2012 or 2013, I was at a dive bar in San Francisco with a bunch of folks from the tech scene. And a friend of mine said, hey, meet this guy, Zach. He's gonna he's got a new company starting up. What do you think? He, this guy, this kid sat down. He was a kid at the time. Told me this and I went, yeah, good luck. That's a highly competitive field and yodeling and everything else. Yeah. Good luck. Never thinking about that. And then what, maybe two years ago, I was at Monday 2020 with Jeff Tyson sitting there watching plaid and Zach Parrott, you know, raise a glass with thousands of people around them. And I thought, I am such a stupid, stupid man. <laughs> showing, your, sh- showing your great <laughs> VC intuition there, Sam. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yet again, it was wrong. So there yeah, we go. I mean, you've ended up at Google, so things haven't gone terribly, but yeah, uh, yeah. F- f- fair enough. Um, let's, move on. let's move on to the next one. Um, UK banks plan to share uh, branches as regulator seeks to block closures. This one blew my mind. Um, this was from uh, AltFi. Um, so hundreds of banks, uh, if... I don't know if you've been living under a rock, um, loads of bank closures this year, um, hundreds have closed. Um, and now the, the regulator, I'm assuming this is the FCA, but it's not actually in the article stated as the FCA, is now calling on banks to reconsider closures. And according to the Financial Times, this could go as far as to block future closures of banks. Um, the UK's biggest banks uh, are discussing creating a new generation of shared banking hubs in order to continue providing banking services for the most rural communities. Um, similar to what's actually happened with the post office, which now allows uh, customers to access cash and banking services through around 11,000 plus branches, which is which has been going around for quite a while. Um, between 2000, this I can believe, between 2000 and 2019, banks closed almost half their branches. That was crazy. And across 500 towns in the UK, there's only one bank branch left. Um, repeated surveys have predicted, I mean, you only have to work in a bank, to, uh, one of the tier ones to, to, to know this, that bank branches will soon disappear and cut off hundreds of thousands of people from their banks and access to cash. Big movement inside those tier ones to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, teaming up, honestly, I think I've been talking about, if it wasn't bank branches closing, it's like how to do cash management, which is kind of related. Um, and I used to work in a tier one and I was sort of, you know, on the edges of working on a project like this as well. Um I, I guess does teaming up make the most sense, uh, Guerra? Maybe we'll start with you. Uh, like, from from your perspective, we, we've covered this before on the show. I'm a big advocate of this. What, what are your thoughts? I mean, I have nothing really insightful to say other than like, <laughs> I think that teaming oh, okay. up, <laughs> no, so te- teaming up, teaming up sounds good. You know, it's like kind of like carpooling. Yeah, sure. Let's you know, let's let's save money together. Maybe the regulator might uh, toss them a life raft. Maybe they might have a little bit of stimulus. 
uh, to keep these branches open. But yeah, I mean, I see it as like, uh, this is so weird. I see it as like potentially the resurgence of back branches being like luxurious places where like you can get a coffee and, and look around, shop around for a mortgage or, you know, like show your kids how cash works or like, like for school trips, they can go there and see I like think, how bank branches. We, we've done that though. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I think that was like, that was like six. There was like a wave of bank branches which turned into coffee shops in like 2013 and then that's just like it didn't work. But you are right. Like I Just picking up on one of your points, uh, Sam, your thoughts on this one. If the regulator gets involved and blocks it and then, you know, promotes teamwork, if I was sitting at the bank from a bank's perspective, I'd be like, that's all good. No worries. Give me some money for that. Would you expect the same? Yeah, Um I'm laughing. So there's this thing called TikTok, Adam. You don't know about it, but the kids really like this thing. And there's a fintok. I know fintok. Okay. Like, trust me, I'm I'm down with it. I'm down there's with a real it. popular thing on TikTok where it's the uh, um, I'm at the Pizza Hut, I'm at the Taco Bell, I'm at the combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, and yeah, Guerra's dancing. And 100, that's what this reminds me of. Right, this this combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. I mean, I get it. Uh, here's where I really get it. And this is definitely something that I know plays in the UK. And it's also the same in the US. Um, when you're, you know, when you're in the cities, not a problem, but you get out in the middle of, you know, Yorkshire, nowhere. And the high street banks are dying out, right? And it's the same there. And and you can have digital, but there are some level of services that, you know, still have some feeling of touch to it. That's where it gets rough. You know, or or like Detroit, where I am from, where for a period of maybe 15 years, there were literally there wasn't even God, there was no Starbucks in all of Detroit. That's a true statement. Right. And and there literally was not a Starbucks in the metro area, but also banks fled like mm-hmm. crazy. And how do you service those communities? Now, we did talk about neobanks earlier that are that are coming up. But, you know, servicing communities and, and what you do there, um, if you got to team up to do this. Yes. Um, if you're going to do that, I would expect, especially in the U.S., if we were to adopt something like this, some level of funding to come from the government and the regulators stepping in. So, yeah, I think you'd have so to. Does that make banking like like a like a utility then? Would that was that something that, that the government? Well, in the U.S., they've talked about doing it with the post offices forever and a day. Right. Um, AOC has been a huge proponent of that here. But I mean, post offices are also like in America and the U.K. as well are like government run like they're the tax money goes yes. toward that but banks are private entities so does it i know you know from an argument perspective like combination pizza hut and taco yeah. bell come on Arctic, where are we Sam, speaking about of detroit this? fun fact <laughs> maybe we might have to cut this but <laughs> the first time i went into a bank in the year of 2018 uh was in detroit uh to attend a rave um it was a converted i, I was there i was the oh. dj so you don't need to cut DJ that Mom, yeah. don't keep that in well, what, what did you win with abba was it uh, Abba and or, or your go, funky sixty uh, I used to go by Molly Mall <laughs> back in the day. Well, Sa- Sam's uh, central tune to the sixties coming out there um, <laughs> back, back when he was thirty. Um, Rod, um, a quick one from you. Um, uh, it's interesting. The cost of this one hundred million. Uh, this is the projected cost: one hundred million for two hundred sites across five years. Uh, banks are starting. To, uh, this is uh, sort of very high level, pie in the sky kind of costs. Banks. The banks have obviously said that's too much money for them to shoulder. Probably looking for a grant from uh, from the regulator. Um, I suppose with that in mind. And knowing what you know about banks and the fact that you work with them very closely, can you see this kind of collaborating collaboration story that's needed ever working? Well, it, it, it's, look, it seems a sensible solution, doesn't it? Because, you know, if, if you're going through consolidate, basically massive consolidation and downsizing, eventually ending up sharing facilities and costs, you know, surely that's a sensible thing. But it's look, it's just part of the journey. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad I'm not in the bank with a branch network that's just watching it slowly whittle away and all the cost and grief and infrastructure associated with it. I can't even remember the last time I went into a bank. I mean, what does someone do in a bank? And I appreciate that there are people that might still be reliant on but on banks for some things, but it's just, I, I can't even imagine why you would need to go into a bank. And, you know, in not too many years, I suspect most people, if not everyone, will eventually get to get to that position. So this is just a stepping stone to eventually, 
it disappearing surely you know surely it ends up with um uh, the the branch disappearing uh, entirely at some point in in the future but yeah it's interesting i mean there are I, I suppose from a property perspective there's there's the obvious kyc for mortgages and then there's withdrawing big like large amounts of money and things of that nature but there's also um i suppose there's popular I, I, it kind of ties into the macro uh stance around like population density and like uh, the an aging population and a population that um or certainly a tier of the population that haven't necessarily adopted digital um and we, we've covered a couple of solutions prior to this show which talks around how private companies were looking to you know open up shared banking facilities in rural towns and whatever else so it is interesting there was a private element to that but this would kind of i suppose wash away with you know any sort of private initiative on entrepreneurship in this way and it would become very much a big bank uh, an enterprise um yeah shared hubs mean shared costs but then probably also uh, shared problems I, I i do sort of think about how uh, all the big banks coming together would, would would manage this. Like just knowing that what I've seen before, like I could just see like this concoction of uh, bureaucracy, which 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 might kill it before it starts. But you never know. You never know. You keep a smile on your face. You you, you never know. Right. Let's move on to the next story. Uh, and well, this isn't a story. This is an answer machine plug. Um, so before we move on to the next part of the show, uh, I wanted to let you know that we're planning an AMA. So this is an Ask Us Anything episode of Fintech Insider where you can ask us anything you like. Um, call the brand new, I did this last week, Call that, but now I'm going to do it in sort of a jingly way. Call the brand new Fintech Insider hotline on 0208050 That's 0208050 uh, Leave your name and we'll shout you out and play your message on that AMA show. Or f- alternatively, feel free to tweet us um, send us a voice note to podcast at 11fs.com with your questions, or you can email us if you don't want to record yourself. Um, yeah, just go nuts. I mean, D- David was on last week's show. I did this uh, this mini plug, and he said literally ask him anything. So f- free reign for listeners. Um, cool. Let's move on to the next story. Um, and these are the stories that we didn't have time to cover. Uh, Guerra, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So this comes from Finextra. Brex buys Israel's Weave. So U.S. corporate card unicorn Brex has paid $50 million to buy Weave, an Israeli outfit offering a universal API for commerce platforms. Uh, Brex launched in 2017 with a corporate card for venture-backed businesses before expanding to offer business cash accounts, spend management, and bill pay software. Now now it is also looking to expand geographically, so securing an innovation hub in Israel. Uh, Meanwhile, Weave's technology uh, will accelerate the connectivity of Brex's platform. Uh, after successful part, so you know the CEO of Brex, um, Enrique Dubugra, uh, says after a successful partnership, uh, we are thrilled to make Weave a part of our core team. Uh, Weave's technology helps make Brex even better for our customers. This is really cool. I think Brex is it's interesting to see them expand outside of the U.S. and decide to go to Israel, uh, also known as Silicon Wadi, which means desert in Arabic um, and colloquial Hebrew, I believe. Uh, but yeah, like tons of startups have come out of there. Like, it, uh, I think I read somewhere that it has more startups per capita than like San Francisco. I think it was. I, some it was some wild statistic. But um, yeah, really cool to see to see Brex expanding. Yeah, um, I'll move on to the next one, which is personalized credit startup Kibo raises five million in seed funding. Uh, so this was carried on Finextra. This is that Kibo, which is a credit card startup that applies open banking data and behavioral science, uh, fi- uh, science sorry, to provide a personalized credit line for customers has raised five million in a seed funding. Uh, launching in October this year, Kibo claims to be the only credit card company authorized by the FCA for open banking based underwriting. That's pretty, I'll let that settle in. Um, that's pretty cool. It looks into a customer's broader financial behavior and encourages financial well-being beyond simple debt repayments. Um, every transaction made with a Kibo card uh, and all linked accounts feeds into the company's underwriting technology to give the users a rounded view of their spending behavior. Um, and the reason why probably they've got this uh, accreditation from the FCA is that Kibo's um, throughout their build journey has been awarded three technology grants by the UK government for developing its financial modelling, including Innovate UK's Fast Start grant for cutting-edge startups. This like combines all of the things that we've been talking about, but open banking, obviously, behavioural finance, financial inclusion, because you 
in theory, you can give a credit product to those who have very, very little in the way of uh, credit history. Um, and then also working with those guys to make their spending responsible and then building their credit score at the same time. Um, loads of companies have been looking at this, um, but not necessarily from a credit card and credit application kind of uh, through that lens. So this is really, really interesting. Um, and also interested to see uh, like the background and the thought process behind the FCA granting them the license, which I think is you know really progressive and shows that they're comfortable to actually introduce this kind of product into the open banking ecosystem. So super excited to see um, how that one goes. Uh, Guerra, do you want to finish us off for the next one? Yeah, sure. So Starling top CMA ratings for business banking quality. Uh, so this is from Finextra. So Starling has shot straight up the, to the top of the charts and the latest rankings of business banking services by the Competition and Markets Authority, CMA. Uh, the results show how each bank is rated on overall quality of service and make it easier for people to compare offers. Uh, so Adam Land, the senior director of the CMA, says that this past year has put financial pressure on many people and small businesses. And this is the first full set of results to reflect how banks have supported customers through this difficult period. Uh, so Starling has topped the charts in three out of four categories for which it was eligible. So overall service quality, service and quality, online and mobile banking services, and SME overdraft and loan services. Really, really great to see Starling continue to grow and, and see all this good news come out of Starling. So congrats to them. Yeah, congrats to them indeed. Right, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week, and it's our and finally story. Uh, this week it features HSBC again for the second week in a row, uh, but this time uh, in a little bit of a more positive light, I guess. HSBC uh, are joining the bank card accessibility push with a new vertical design card. Wow. Uh, so this was um, covered on AltFi. So this is the news that HSBC is replacing all its UK bank cards with a new design that prioritizes features to help customers with dementia, sight loss, uh, learning difficulties and dyslexia. Um, the cards are shifting to a vertical design that prioritizes the way most cards are held and used in 2021, similar to what Starling Bank did back in 2018, um, and moves away from that kind of traditional like card horizontal layout with the, with a number on the front. Um, the cards also have uh, larger numbers in contrasting colors and were designed in partnership with charities, including Alzheimer's Society. Um, its new cards will also made from 85% recycled plastic, uh, which HSBC says will save 30 tons of plastic waste per year, which is pretty cool. Um, they, they need to issue about five to six million of these over the next like two quarters, by the way. So, you know, to, so it's, it's a significant undertaking. Um, this is HSBC's UK Head of Financial Inclusion and Vulnerability, Maxine Pritchard, who said, many of us uh, often struggle to tell the difference between our credit card and our debit card or read our card details as the numbers wear off over time. That's very true. Um, these challenges are experienced daily by customers with disabilities. Um, this is pretty cool. Um, we've seen it in sort of startup world for a while. Um, it's, nice to, it's nice to see it go mainstream. Sam, your thoughts? Was this story included because I'm on the show? I'm just out of curiosity. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, listen. You I like to include the elderly. I, yeah, I, I somehow can't. feel that Laura Watkins wrote this into the show notes specifically <laughs> for me. Um, I, mean, you, I think you, it's a yeah. good move. Good move. I remember when I first started working in the UK, this was a long time ago, Thesis, around 2004, 2005, when we were doing the the website forum and having to comply with a lot of RNIB standards. And I didn't know what RNIB was you know, as somebody from the U.S. And so I, to me, it only makes sense. I mean, I, I, I was doing some quick looking up while you were reading the story. You got something like 15 million boomers in the U.K. right now, you know. Um, in the U.S., by the way, there's 71 million boomers, which I'm not, by the way. But Gen X, which I am, there's 65 million. So that's 136 yeah. million folks. I'll, I'll be 55 this year. I mean, it, it only makes sense. So for once, and this is a first for me, good job, HSBC. Yeah, Sam, you don't have to, you know, reiterate your age just so that we believe it. It's all good, man. It's all good. You're supposed uh, to say you look so good and none of you, not a single, I was expecting Rob to step up, but no, Rod just <laughs> you know, I'm the not, screen. You know, I'm not going to say that, but Rod, uh, Rod, Rod, is, Rod, Rod, you can do the honours. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> Unbelievable. God. And he's only Some things never change. Some things never change. Yeah. Welcome back, Sam. Welcome back. Yeah. Uh, Rod, Rod your, your thoughts on this one? Uh, it's, it's really cool. Well, you know, good on HSBC. Why not? Um, and uh, it's great to see... Um, great to see them copying some of the innovators in the space. Why not? You know, it's, it's fantastic. So good on HSBC. 
Yeah, just a quick Aguera. From a, uh, I hate to get all sort of technical on this, but from a, a card design perspective, because on the one hand you've got uh, kind of brow and 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 it's and it's designed in a certain way, but you still need the numbers on the other side, right? So like how you know you've kind of got functionality on both sides. Uh, like from your perspective, from a product perspective, how's it look? How's it feel? I mean, like I feel like it's kind of a no-brainer, and it's kind of easy to just put braille on cards. Like in the past, cards were embossed, right? Like they had. Um, the numbers raised just simply add add yep. numbers like you know secondary like in in braille. Uh, this I don't I this is this is great news. I I don't really want to be patting HSBC on the back too much for doing the bare minimum. <laughs> this is banking, Clara. This is banking. Yeah, but I mean, wait, I mean, you, you say it's the bare minimum, but like, I mean, to be fair to HSBC, I mean, we did bash them last week quite a bit. Like, to be fair to HSBC, this is like six million cards they need to. Um, probably more. And and in addition to that, you know, we talked about engaged users at the beginning of the show. A lot of these uh, customers probably like, you know, have changed addresses and you know, have moved on out there. You know, this is going to be a real pain in the backside for them to sort out. Um, you know, I'll stand by them for this one for sure. Definitely a, an operational ah. like feat. So good for them. But also like, you know, in, uh, I think accessibility is like bare minimum and everyone should be factoring that in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. Cool. Um, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, that was much, much appreciated. Um, let's go around, uh, go around the Zoom as it is still uh, and find out where people can find out more about you. Uh, Rod, do you want to start us off? Um, uh, the Lend Invest website. <laughs> um, you know, if just go to the Lend Invest website, Google us, find the website and find out about what we're doing, what we're up to. And uh, that's the best place to find out about us. Cool. Uh, Mr. Moore, where can we find out about you? <laughs> at, at Sam Mall on Twitter, um, Sam Mall on LinkedIn. FBI most wanted. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. AARP commercials, <laughs> spokesman for Chime. <laughs> you, want, you want to plug a FS product, man? You can just get in touch with him. Uh, Guerra, how about yourself? Yep, 11fs.com uh, on Twitter uh, at notguerra. Cool. And I'm on AdamD8 on Twitter and obviously 11fs.com. Thank you to everybody. um, And thank you for listening. Don't forget to hit up uh, the answer machine to answer your quest for us, sorry, to ask us your questions and obviously we'll answer them. Uh, Otherwise, join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much for listening this week and goodbye.